folks, it's Mark here in February 2024. Next week, you will get the first installment of our Aristotle's Metaphysics series that looks to be four episodes long at this point. We'll see, but we're not quite ready to release that. We had some editing issues. We wanted to give ourselves more time to read. So we thought we'd try to do right by Kierkegaard. You might have noticed that we covered the aesthetic point of view and the ethical point of view in some detail, but then only got one discussion of fear and trembling that didn't quite get his take on faith, or at least we seem very confused, perhaps unsympathetic about it. And I think our Marcel discussion goes some way in alleviating that, giving a more modern version of Kierkegaard's take on faith, a version that is strangely less overtly religious. But I'd had it in the back of my mind since we recorded the Fear and Trembling episode that I would love to share this episode from November 2010, where we first exposed ourselves to Kierkegaard. Fear and Trembling was among our assigned readings, but we barely talk about that at all. It's mostly about the book Sickness Unto Death. We recorded some reflections about this episode for the nightcap that we released at the end of last year. Even in the public preview, you should be able to hear pretty much all we had to say about that. But here is the episode in its entirety, pulled out from behind the paywall for you, 13 plus years after we initially recorded it. We hope you enjoy it. And of course, if you like this, maybe you want to hear the rest of our paywalled episodes. You can do it. It's easy. You go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You sign up. Heck, you can pay $5, download all the paywalled episodes and unsubscribe immediately. Man, that $5 takes you very, very far. But of course, it's much more convenient to maintain your subscription, to get the new part threes, nightcaps, other bonus stuff as it comes out. If you listen on Spotify, you can choose the Patreon option. Spotify now partners with Patreon, so you could use Spotify to listen to your supporter content. But with either the Spotify option or just listening off our website, there are many, many podcast apps you could choose. Probably the one you're using right now, it will work on. You don't have to use the Apple option just to listen to it on Apple. You could sign up via one of the other methods and import that feed into your Apple podcast app. Listening through any of our supporter feeds will get you ad-free episodes, will get you everything we have ever recorded. And if for whatever reason you are turned off by the presence in this feed of other podcasts that I or Wes has created, well, the supporter feeds don't have those. You could just, you know, subscribe to those through their own feeds if you want. There are even ad-free versions of those, of course. So for the pure, superlative, full-bodied, partially examined life experience, Again, partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who are at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 29 is, what is the self? It's a discussion of Soren Kierkegaard's The Sickness Unto Death. For a link to that text discussion and other information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer, apparently in despair from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin, aesthetically reflecting from Austin, Texas. And this is Wes Allwan in despair that Mark took despairing uh, in Boston, <laughs> Massachusetts. There are many ways to despair, Wes. <laughs> and this is Daniel Horn suspending his ethics in San Francisco, California. Very nice. Fantastic. So Daniel is our special guest, and he was someone who just posted smart stuff on partiallyexaminedlife.com and uh, requested Kierkegaard, and I said, hey, well, why don't you come do it with us? Before you tell us about yourself a little, 
I want to test you. It's pop quiz time. Sure. I thought we were doing Schopenhauer, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Daniel, what is the first ground rule for our discussion? Oh, man. Oh, this is awful. Um, don't worry. I don't really, I don't know it either. So. Uh, no name dropping. No name dropping. Well, that's one of them. Ah, oh, dear. Okay, not the No fair person. name dropping in lieu of making your point. Do not say, you would understand me if you only read that recent expose by Bob Woodward and Eric R. Douglas, Why Does Wes Hate Buddhism? That's right. <laughs> I, I think another one may be... <laughs> I think another one is, we are going to assume that no one listening to this podcast has done any of the reading or is even familiar with the subject, so we are going to try to keep that in mind as we talk about it. That was much more cogently put than <laughs> I usually state <laughs> And do you remember the last one? Um, we oh, it's the meaningless one. I only know that we shall we shall only do what it is we're not going to do when we find it might be entertaining. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, let's and, just and we'll say just that's fill in it. the blank. We'll just fill in the blank with whatever that might. That's be. That's actually a very Kierkegaardian way of saying that <laughs> we will only be who we are when now we're not trying to be who we are. <laughs> that's right. Yes, that's going to be number three for today. Okay. All right, so what is your deal, Daniel? Just tell the people briefly. Sure. Well, I am essentially a big fan of the show, and I'm essentially the Courtney Cox that you guys, as Bruce Springsteen, have uh, invited up onto the stage um, to, to go ahead and dance with you guys for a while. little 80s reference there, uh, and maybe aging myself. But no, but I've been following your guys' show for, I think, the better part of a year now, and it came to me at just the same time that I was taking up an amateur interest in philosophy. So you guys were among the many secondary sources I was relying upon to try and get some sort of a grounding in what these various people were talking about and whether or not they might have anything to say to me. But I have absolutely no philosophical training. I'm a lawyer by profession. So other than the fact that I have the ability to uh, parse text and enjoy argument, I really don't know how much I bring to the game here. But I would like to think that with respect to Kierkegaard, he's so much more a literary figure as much as a philosophical one. I'd like to think that perhaps what he had to say was meant to be digested by uh, folks who didn't necessarily have deep philosophical training. Daniel, what kind of law do you practice? Immigration law. Oh, wow. fantastic. Yeah. Interesting. It's very transactional, very dull, but uh, it's the sort of thing that I sort of went into politically, so I get to feel good about what I do every day. So who wants to do the quick summary of The Sickness Unto Death? You could let Daniel do it. Oh, man. Well, he's prepared, I bet. If Daniel's what? prepared, I, I vote for Daniel. <laughs> the Sickness Unto Death is essentially Kierkegaard's attempt to get people to understand that despair is something that is going to impact everyone, whether they know it or not, and that what causes despair is ultimately an imbalance in the makeup of the self. And the only way to cure despair is through faith in God. He goes on to describe that the self has different aspects that are essentially syntheses of different polarities, right? Between the infinite and the finite, the temporal and the internal, and between necessity and possibility. But ultimately, I get the sense that these polarities that he poses are, to some degree, a bit of a con job on Hegel. I've always thought that he was a deep ironist, and that a lot of the first half of the book is really trying to pose a kind of Hegelian structure that he ultimately tears down in the second half of the book. But that ultimately, the thesis of the book is that that despair is inherent to the human condition based upon the way that the self is constructed, and that the only way to really break through despair is to recognize that you are a self-relation, that your identity is essentially a self-relation between your different polarities, and the only way to ground that is to recognize that you have to be grounded in the being that created you, to wit God, and unless you do that through faith, you're always going to be stuck in despair. That's good. That's concise. 
there were sort of two levels here that I was getting out of it. One is this thing that you hear today from Christians, which is, if you're not Christian, if you don't believe in God, well, you're really sad. You might not want to admit it to yourself, but you are really sad. Think about it. Reflect upon it. In fact, if you're too clueless to realize that you're really sad and that there's a hole in your life, then there's really a problem there. Like, is at least if you realize that there's a problem there, you're, you can maybe start to recover. But if you're so pathetic as to think you can just deny the whole thing, then you're, you're ignoring yourself. Anyway, so it's that kind of really irritating argument that I hear today, but yet it's dressed up in this crazy ass Hegel influenced language, which is why I picked the question, what is the self? Because all the ways of being in despair are given by his conception of the dynamic of self. Like, do you, are you denying what you are or you're think that you're something you're not? You're denying that you could be anything. You're denying the immortal part of yourself. There's all these variations on this. Right. And just to follow up on that, perhaps one thing I could have inserted uh, that he identifies essentially three different types of despair, right? One is being unaware of the fact that you're even in despair. The second is recognizing that you have despair within yourself, but ultimately feeling that you're too weak to be able to come to grips with how to pull yourself out of it. And then ultimately sort of being in this pent-up state of reserve that Kierkegaard refers to. And then finally, just rejecting it outright in defiance, right? Just saying, this is nonsense. I can't possibly accept these concepts. And so therefore, I'm just going to reject them outright. And it's important to Kierkegaard to state that these are essentially escalating levels of despair, right? That when he says that there are three different types of despair, the metaphor I bring to it are sort of uh, colors on a, on a color spectrum. You know, if you think of wavelengths of light on a color spectrum that goes from red to indigo, and the wavelength increases the higher the despair gets. But that one kind of despair <laughs> is definitely worse than another, right? That in one sense, innocence, at least in the sense of uh, pagan innocence, right? Not being aware of the fact that there is this concept of Christianity or not really having thought about it is less offensive. It's less well, bad it's, a sin. It's, it's less bad a sin, but at the same time, it's further from grace, right? At least, again, if you realize, if you're, in fact, for each of these types, there are a few subtypes. And just to bring one up, this whole uh, denial, I mean, yes, there's, you could deny and say the whole thing is bullshit, but you could also admit that there is a God, but sort of defy him and say, you know, any God that would create a world like this is a bastard, you know, that kind of... <laughs> You could, in fact, be a despairing Christian, and even though that's a bigger sin because you really realize what you're doing, according to him, it's kind of closer to grace because you could change your mind about that. The way Kierkegaard described it, I believe, is that if anyone is truly going to become a Christian, and I think this is something that differentiates Kierkegaard from perhaps the type of smug Christians that you may have heard uttering these things about how you're in despair if you don't accept God into your life and that sort of thing, is that to hear Kierkegaard tell it, this process of working your way through despair from essentially ignorance into defiance is a process that everyone has to go through in order to break through to the other side. And I know that we're not supposed to be name dropping, but I'm hoping that we can refer to Hegel in this because you guys have done an episode on Hegel. In the Hegel episode, Mark, you had given a brief description of Hegel's description of the master-slave relationship and the conception of self. And I get the sense that without necessarily coming right out and saying so, this really helps define the way Kierkegaard thinks of the relationship between the despairing sinner and God, which is to say you engage in this kind of master-slave relationship in relating yourself to this higher being. And as I understand, the struggle between the despairing sinner and God is one where you first need to become aware of it, and then you start to really wonder if you can actually meet the standard that's set by God. And the more you reflect upon that, you are going to ultimately have to reach a point where you wonder if this is even worth it, if this is even possible, if this is even true. But ultimately, you have to break through that to get to the other side, which is finally acceptance, which not everybody does. 
right? You very much get the sense from Kierkegaard that the path is wide, but the gate is narrow. I think Kierkegaard is actually clearer in this talk of self by far than Hegel mm-hmm. is. So this is a good way of introducing that. We are going to do another Hegel episode right on this part of the phenomenology, which is his early, the good Hegel, <laughs> I, I would right. say. The characterization that we've given this for this on past episodes is just that, unlike an English utilitarian, say, that thinks that we are all just these little balls of selfishness that have to establish our duties and bounds toward each other. Hegel has a view of self that says, to start with, we're all just kind of part of the mass and we only gradually develop a sense of self. And the way we develop it originally is other people treating us certain ways. That's how you learn about yourself. You're not born with this subjectivity. It's because other people treat you in certain ways and that sort of creates this objective image of you, which you can then reflect on and decide whether that's right. Maybe, you know, if you're actually develop a full sense of self and then you can self-determine. So Kierkegaard is definitely following in that tradition that most people don't have a sense of self at all. They're just big slugs and go along with the crowd, whatever. And then, like you said, Daniel, the twist here is that it's not just other people treating you certain ways, but it's somehow God treating you a certain way that is supposed to ultimately determine your true self. And there are issues with that, of course, because people treating you certain ways, it's obvious they're standing in front of you talking to you, whereas with God, maybe you're making it up just to briefly characterize Hegel. I don't think we're going to gain anything by briefly characterizing Hegel. In order for this to make sense of what Kierkegaard's talking about. We have to at least work through his idea of the self. This book opens with one of the most enigmatic sentences, I think, in the history of philosophy. Part first, section one, that despair is the sickness unto death. Man is spirit, but what is spirit? Spirit is the self, but what is the self? And here is the magical sentence. I can only imagine what this sounds like in German or Danish. The self is a relation which relates itself to its own self, or it is that in the relation, which accounts for it, that the relation relates itself to its own self. The self is not the relation, but consists in the fact that the relation relates itself to its own self. (laughs) Now, I spent a fair amount of time trying to puzzle that one out, and I have to say, um, I struggled quite a bit trying to understand what he was getting at. Is at one point, he contrasts this with, say, the mind and the body, I think, or the soul and the body. And he says, you know, you can think about a relation between the soul and the body, but getting caught up in that, it's not the same thing as the relation relating to itself. Yeah, I think you take the dyad, the relationship between soul and body, and then you do another self-relation of that. So instead of the self simply being this I guess maybe spirit inhabiting a body or or the relationship between spirit and body. It's another level upon that where the dyad is self-related in some way. And I think there the idea is that God comes in and provides the grounds for that self-relation. And that's why he wants to take it up another level, let's say. I like the interpretation that he's he's making fun of Hegel here, that this whole <laughs> essay is presented <laughs> under a pseudonym Anticlimacus, which uh, he has a few different pseudonyms he published under, and he would do stuff like publish three books on the same day under different pseudonyms that kind of contradict each other in part. And the way he characterized some of his pseudonyms, that you know why he would do this, is Anticlimacus 
is supposed to be somebody that is more spiritually developed than Kierkegaard is. Yeah. Well, and Anticlimacus was meant to be a riff on a prior pseudonym he had used in a prior work of Johannes yes. Climacus, right? And uh, I believe Johannes Climacus was originally, I mean, in history, was some sort of, uh, I think, medieval Syrian Christian monk. And the idea was that he was uh, John of the Latter, right? That's Climacus in Latin. And uh, the idea was was that this is a person who's, who's kind of gradually building this sort of ladder to heaven. But the tone that he'd taken with that pseudonym was really one of kind of someone who's not a very good Christian or someone who's not even a Christian at all. But the idea is now with the Six of Sun to Death, he wanted to pose a different type of character. The point of Anticlimachus was to be able to take an ultra-Christian stance toward this, but it's not actually speaking for Kierkegaard as such. Part of Kierkegaard's whole theory of literature, and he certainly didn't see himself as a philosopher. He saw himself largely as opposed to philosophers. A Christian poet. That, right. I think in, uh, in, in Fear and Troubling, I think he just referred to himself as a freelancer, right? I think the way we might think of him today is a kind of a social critic. Perhaps he's the anti-Christopher Hitchens in, in the sense that he doesn't see himself as an academic. He doesn't see himself as a churchman. And insofar as he's a pamphleteer, a blogger, maybe. Yeah, it's a good point. He sees his role as someone who is free. He's got the luxury of being able to say what he feels. And whether or not anyone reads him is sort of besides the point. But at least it gives him the freedom to speak the truth that he doesn't really have any other agenda. Do you want to say why he has that luxury? We didn't do a bio, so maybe we should throw in elements of that here. Oh, this is all to, to explain the one sentence that Seth brought up. <laughs> well, my advice is continue with a little bio, right. and then I'll get and into then we'll taking come back it to the sentence, and we can read it on right. both levels. We can take it seriously, and then we can look at the parody of Hegel part of this. Um, right, it's stylistically yeah, I, I, a parody. Of I think by way of biography and the uh, pseudonyms, this I is think important. it will help attune our sensibilities to use another <laughs> Kierkegaardian concept here. If, if we get into the biography here, so Kierkegaard was born in 1813 in Copenhagen, died at the age of 42, very young in 1855. Soren's father, who had had a very strong influence on Soren's sensibilities growing up as a child. Had started out very dirt poor, had made his way, you know, largely through good fortune, but also a kind of force of will into uh, becoming quite wealthy. But he had a very pietistic sensibility, very strict sensibility. But as I believe as a young man, when he was still uh, tending sheep out in rural Denmark in the cold, he had at one point cursed God. And this apparently left a very strong mark on Michael Kierkegaard's sensibilities because he had felt that he had forever after cursed his own family and cursed his own progeny by having cursed God earlier. And I think he started to see his fears realized when I think five of his seven children all died at very young ages. Of the seven children he had, only two of the sons, Peter Kierkegaard and Soren Kierkegaard, went on to reach adulthood. And even then, at least Soren sounds like he was a, a fairly sickly child. He was afflicted with scoliosis. I think he spent like four days in the Danish military after having been conscripted and was kicked out for having been uh, physically unfit. But he was raised in wealth. He went to the finest kind of private school, went off to the University of Copenhagen. He earned the equivalent of a, of a PhD degree in philosophy. And his dissertation that he defended in order to get his magister certificate was on the concept of irony. And its thesis was essentially that Socrates should be seen primarily as an ironist. And the reason why that's important is that I think Soren Kierkegaard's own conception of truth while very strictly guided by this kind of dour Christian sensibility, also felt that truth itself was somewhat unknowable, that objective truth was impossible to get at, that there, it might not even be a coherent concept. And the only way to get people to understand that is to break down their sense of what truth is. 
And this is why Kierkegaard was somewhat obsessed with Socrates. I think he thought of himself to some degree as a modern-day Socrates. And I think he sees his whole role as somewhat to use irony as a tool to get people to break down their assumptions. He was strongly opposed to the way philosophy was taught at the time, which is that it was thoroughly and absolutely dominated by Hegel. And what defines Hegel, if nothing else, is that he's trying to build a system, right? He's trying to build a philosophical theory of everything. And this is completely opposed to what Kierkegaard thought was possible. First of all, he thought he was anti-Christian, but I think he also thought it just wasn't true. It just wasn't sensible. He wanted to make sure that as he wrote all of his various publications, that no one could actually aggregate them and to say, this is what Kierkegaard says on X. This is Kierkegaard's system. He wanted to get away from that. And so therefore, the use of pseudonyms was in part to be able to allow him to take positions that he wasn't actively advocating, because his point wasn't to get you to believe what he said. His point was to try and get you to question what you thought you already knew. He wanted to make sure he could put on a different mask every time he wrote a different book. So he takes an ironic distance towards his own claims. Very good. That's exactly right. And also that he himself could not be pegged down. He wanted to break down systems. He didn't want to build them up. And I, I think he found that a useful tool to make that happen. Yeah. Relating to how much he seems to go on and on in any one of these essays, I also saw a strong, the influence of sermons. Yes. <laughs> it amazes me that people who lecture in churches can week after week and after week and after week find more things to talk about when they're just talking really about the same thing. You know, they're, they're espousing the same creed. And he very much takes that, you know, fear and trembling is just taking the story of Abraham and just meditating on it and giving five different interpretations of it. And then just think about what Abraham was thinking at the time God asked, you know, and, and bringing in uh, related literary references and comparing those. It's a very meditational way of doing philosophy rather than here's my thesis. Now I'm going to argue for it. Yes, Hegel can be very long winded as well, but not rambling in this way. I can see why people often edit down Kierkegaard's works because they lend themselves to that. It seems to break into bite-sized pieces very nicely. So I think this is probably the principal source of my resistance to Kierkegaard in general, is that if it's true that he was maintaining this ironic distance and saw himself as kind of a contemporary Socrates, and he basically uses this lifetime of work and pseudonyms to try to get people to question you know, engage their own self in questioning. You would have to live a long time, be very conscientious and be ridiculously smart to be persuaded and influenced by somebody like Kierkegaard because his this is not easy reading. And I can only imagine the project of being persuasive to a larger public audience via the written word over a series of years, you know, creating this kind of dialogue between characters. And I'm curious, I I didn't do the research, but he obviously was ridiculously influential to the vast majority of at least European philosophers who immediately followed him. But I wonder how popular and influential was he during the time he was writing. Yeah, he wasn't. He absolutely and utterly wasn't. Because he didn't work at a university, he didn't have a position within the church, although this is a guy with a PhD in theology, right? So he could have gone those paths, but his wealth allowed him to avoid doing it. And because ideologically, he felt that academia was completely passionless and banal. 
and because he felt the church was thoroughly corrupt. And I don't mean corrupt in the way that, say, the Catholic Church was accused of having been corrupt by Luther. He thought that ultimately everyone had a very smug and self-satisfied sense of what Christianity was. That Christianity was essentially a lifestyle, right? You're raised a Christian, you are baptized at a church, you go to church every Sunday, you go ahead and go through some motions. You say, oh great, heaven sounds very nice, I'll, you know, as long as I obey the laws and don't be an actively mean person. God seems like he's a nice enough guy too, so I'll go through all of that and I'll ultimately go to heaven. Kierkegaard just, that did not meet with his sensibility. And he actually frittered away all of his fortune publishing his body of work. But a lot of these publications sold almost nothing. He sort of came into vogue posthumously. He found his way into translation into German at about the same time that there were a lot of debates on Christianity going on within Germany on the direction of Protestantism. That ultimately spread out to, let's say, like a, a young Martin Heidegger, who started out in uh, a Catholic seminary, as I understand it. Nietzsche was apparently vaguely acquainted with Kierkegaard in the later stages of his life. There's some stylistic kinship there, too. Right, right. But I think you raise a good point, Seth. It's not for everyone. You know, I think Wittgenstein opened up the Tractatus with this comment that this book is really only for people who already have some sense of what I'm already talking about. I wonder if Kierkegaard is almost speaking more to a kind of uh, critical sensibility, saying, you know, is it just me or is this Hegelian stuff really deeply flawed? Even when I was in school, I avoided and resisted reading Kierkegaard. And I think part of the reason was that you have to take up the whole study of the totality of his works almost, or his positions. He's not a philosopher that lends himself to, say, East part interpretation, right. which makes jumping into the sickness unto death. So I led the discussion by saying, this sentence completely perplexes me. Now, on the one hand, that sentence completely perplexes me. On the other hand, I only have the text to work from because I didn't go back and read the collected works and study the biography of Kierkegaard. And as we know that for him, biography was very important in reading philosophers. Like, he was very interested and thought it was very important that philosophers, the way they lived was a reflection, should be a reflection of what their philosophical systems were. But to some degree, there has to be meaning in what he's saying, and there has to be a reason he's saying this. There could be multiple meanings, and it could be ironic. But I also think that his points about the need for people to question the fact that the self is a relation between things, this notion of infinitude, infinitude, and so forth, and that he's trying to lead you to some understanding of your relationship to God. In that context, the sentence does mean something, yes. and it does mean something that we can think about and talk about philosophically just on the merits of the text. My fear is that the next two hours is going to be people saying, yeah, well, but in this other thing, he says this, and that's just, we have to understand this in contrast to this is relationship to his mother, or <laughs> what, you know, Johannes de Silencio says in such and such a passage. And if, if that's the way it's going to be, then I'm not going to have much to contribute. So, but it's an interesting issue, whether you can take the text and read it kind of as a standalone, or do you need this whole biography in order to, to make sense of it? Let me just jump in. Again, I, I think this is like a sermon, and I think it does make sense as a standalone I think that he wrote from these different points of views, to some extent, to have different stylistic approaches for different audiences, right? He published some pamphlets, he published some long works, he published some fiction, like it was not all aimed at the same group, and it was not supposed to be something that, again, like Daniel said, that he didn't want people to follow him and read everything that he wrote. In fact, he approaches the same problems again and again from slightly different takes, you know, like someone giving sermons would, so that it's supposed to be meaningful in itself. So this is 1849. This is one of his last works. He died in 1851. 
This is him at his most mature, whereas earlier he was sort of playing around with these other things, writing about opera and writing about uh, the aesthetic life and things like this. This is the big time sermonizing. I feel like, to some degree, I felt a little bit of relief when I got the sense that there is this whole theory that says that he's joking. There are other people, by the way, I think you guys have heard of Hubert Dreyfus, a philosophy professor at UC Berkeley, the big Heideggerian scholar. He has absolutely no use for the idea that this is all just sort of comedy and mockery and irony. He really does want to take the text of this book at face value. Yes, but you don't think the style, because he doesn't continue this opaquely through the rest of this. It's a very understandable work. That's right. But at the same time, this is kind of laying the foundation for the entire rest of the book, that effectively this is a kind of a table of contents, the way he's breaking this down. And because he's compressing so much of what he's going to go on to say in one paragraph, you're a little bit lost. But just to take it at its word, here's how I see this concept of the self relating to itself. What he means is that the self is not just a combination of body and soul. It's not a compound like hydrogen and oxygen coming together and forming a molecule. That it's a process. It's a dialectic. To say that the self relating to itself is not just a, this absurd concept, what it means is it's that it's your interiority matching with your exteriority. In other words, it's what you believe and what you think matched against how you comport yourself in the world. The self relating to itself means how do you match your individual sensibilities and your individual subjective sense of what ought to be done or what's true with how you actually act in the world. When he says that the relation relates to itself, and this is the positive third, this is the self. But what he means by that is that just to say that there's soul and body, that's not the self. In fact, it says here, the text, a human being is a synthesis of the infinite and the finite, of the temporal and the eternal, of freedom and necessity, in short, a synthesis. And now, by the way, when I say that this is sort of a table of contents for the rest of the book, notice that he actually explodes out these concepts later on in the book, right, as what infinite and finite means, temporal and eternal. A synthesis is a relationship between two terms. Looked at this way, a human being is not yet a self. In other words, you shouldn't look at these as, as kind of a static, it's not like two Legos being snapped together and saying, oh, body and soul, this is the self, but rather that it's the way in which which your soul relates to your body, the way that your sensibilities of the infinite match to your the amount of time you have on Earth, the way that your historicity, your necessity, you know, what makes you historically yourself matches to your possibilities, what you think you can do. And so that ultimately, the relation is the self. I think that's a really key point. And I want to just ask the assemblage here. If we take what Daniel just said, that the self is a relation and not a thing, so to speak, or at least not a, a substance like we've traditionally thought about it. Is that a twist on Hegel, or is that something new and different that he's adding to the discussion? I think part of it is he wants to combat that ancient Greek notion of virtue, and he's combating it with the sense of personal responsibility. There's something passive about just talking about a self as a, call it, relation of spirit and body or mind and body, So where Aristotle talked about, for instance, virtues, which were sort of states of the soul, and to a large extent, there's a lot of determinism there, a lot dependent upon your childhood, sort of like a early psychology, let's say. I think Kierkegaard wants to get to this transcendent relationship, which is above that, this sort of, you know, you take the dyad of spirit and body, and then you give it another level of self-relation. And as Daniel was mentioning, it has a lot to do with constantly renewing your will to live in a certain way involving faith as something that's positive in the sense of it's not inertial. You don't just decide to believe in God, let's say, as the grounds, you know, he calls it the sort of grounds of that relationship. And then you coast. It constantly involves this effort or activity. So it's a lot different than just saying, I have a certain character trait 
which I could call a virtue, or, you know, I go to church every day, I have certain habits. It's this idea of ultimate responsibility and activity, and I think that's why it's important here. He talks about if you just conceive a relation between body and soul, for instance, and we've run in this in other metaphysical discussions, when you talk about, like, what is a relation? Well, that seems like it's a third thing between these two things. Well, but then wouldn't you need another thing to connect the first thing to the relation to the third thing? Like, if a relation was just a passive thing like that, then you would have that sort of infinite regress problem. And so he's very against this kind of metaphysical analysis. He wants to give a practical analysis that when we say that I am both matter and mind or something like that, then the realization of what that means in practical terms is the activity of coming to know myself in both of those aspects. And he says the self is spirit, using this Hegelian term, which the spirit, like you were saying, is I mean, it's the thing that moves. It's an activity. Yes. yes. So that's, I think, the key point. And I guess I was trying to tease that out. Kierkegaard's notion of the self, as it's described in here, whether you take this sentence or even later on, it's essential to the discussion throughout the book that the self is this relation between these two other terms. And a relation is not a thing in the way that those other two terms are things, or it's not a state. It's a dynamic. The self is constantly positioned between two other terms. And there's lots and lots of different oppositions that he brings into the discussion. But in essence, the self doesn't exist without the opposition between those two things, but it is the tension between those two things. And it's the fact that it exists in that state of tension, and it's very dynamic, that I think is different than a lot of the other conceptions of the self being eternal, you know, an eternal soul or a thing in a kind of Cartesian sense. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this is his sort of variation on Hegel's Self-consciousness, right? right? Exactly. So he's getting at a very basic notion of self as self-relation, as in that reflective component. Mm -hmm. The relation relates itself to its own self. <laughs> so it's not even just the relation connecting mind and body, for instance, but it's a reflection upon the relation. It's not even just the relation. The relation yeah, you it, always, relates itself with, to its own self. With the notion self. of self-consciousness, you always get into that regress of, you know, consciousness of consciousness of consciousness and so on. Well, and what's important is that, that that's not just a tension which sort of implies that there's this constantness to it, right? It's an activity that one has to engage in, which is why I think Kierkegaard repeatedly throughout the book points out that yeah. a lot of people haven't even developed a self, right? They're born, they live their lives, they die as a member of the crowd, never having developed a self in the first place. And that this is actually the most common form of despair because people are not willing to go through that activity, just like jogging is an activity or brushing your teeth is an activity. Yeah. It's, it's something you have to engage in through force of will. Yeah, it doesn't beat like your heart beats. It's something that you do or choose not to do. Yeah. Where for Hegel, a lot depends upon the circumstances of history, right? Where the world spirit is, I guess, would be the correlate to Kierkegaard's God. Kierkegaard is reemphasizing the individual. No, it's a matter of individual effort, and it's not merely something culturally determined, let's say. Yeah. Right. Well, for Hegel, people will mature to kind of the level of where the intellectuals, at least, are at during that particular age. We stand on the shoulders of our ancestors in this way. Whereas Kierkegaard says very specifically in near the end of the Fear and Trembling that, no, we don't do that. Like, every generation starts fresh, and it's not a progressive thing where through time we gain more and more self-consciousness until, for Hegel, you know, at the ultimate end of history, then we are, the group is, you know, the world spirit is yeah. God, essentially, becoming aware of itself. And he's kind of abstract about that, but that is exactly what Kierkegaard wants to argue against, that we can't think that society is going to help us as individuals Society as a whole is going to become self-conscious. It's up to each of us 
individually to take on the challenges. So this is a thing that the existentialists run with then. This is why Kierkegaard is considered the father yeah. of existentialism. And typically, right, there's a struggle against societal forms, whatever they are, because those have a sort of sedimenting habitual effect, right? And habit is not it. He's sort of endorsing his, his own kind of defiance in opposition to the defiance towards God. I mean, his sort of radical individualism and defiance against, let's say, societal rituals and even church rituals. Okay, well, I think this is productive. But I think it's useful to say that the Kierkegaardian notion of the self is this thing that is constantly moving and struggling to maintain itself, caught between all of these different tensions, some of which it may be consciously aware of and some of which it may not. But it sets the stage for, like you said, Mark, you know, the existentialist running with it, but it also sets the stage for him introducing this idea of despair. Right. Because if you imagine the self as being constantly in tension between different things, some of which are attainable and some of which aren't, and some of which it may think are what it should be doing, so to speak, maybe trapped between what it is and what it thinks it should be or something along those lines, then this dynamic notion of self really makes a lot more sense and the concept of despair, even as technically as he uses it, makes a lot more sense. I agree with everything you just said. And I think this now lets us get to the next part, which is, okay, now we, to the extent that we say this is the self, how does the self fall into despair? And that ultimately despair is, or at least the metaphor he uses is that of vertigo, right? So to the extent that I see is the relation is a kind of uh, spinning wheel. The wheel is constructed of these various opposing forces within you, these various syntheses within you. But the syntheses are out of balance because the finite isn't equal to the infinite. Necessity is not equal to possibility. And as a result, if you think of it as a kind of a spinning wheel or a rotating wheel, part of the wheel is much heavier than the other end. And so therefore, there's this lack of equilibrium as it spins around and relates to itself. And by the way, this is an image I'm using. This isn't exactly Kierkegaard, but he does use the concepts of equilibrium, balance, and vertigo. I like your uh, image. I've actually done the most banal thing possible, and I've actually made a PowerPoint of this entire book. <laughs> that goes on the site. Do you have clip art? I actually do have clip art to try and define the spinning wheel of the self. Can I just, you've already demonstrated far beyond, you know, this is not just, oh, any of our listeners right now could just <laughs> join us on here and be prepared with a PowerPoint and have read way more secondary sources and way more things by Kierkegaard. And you say you just started this like last no, 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 year? No. Well, no, but ago? keep in mind, I haven't read anything else. <laughs> or at least I have, you know, I, the, part of the reason I went to Kierkegaard, part of the reason I said, hey, Kierkegaard would be a great podcast is because that's what actually happened to have interest for me. But, you know, I mean, the point I was trying to make is to get into despair. And that's all I was trying to do was respond to what Seth had said, which is that the way the self relates to despair is that it's this kind of relation out of balance that it creates this vertigo within us as a result of the fact that the finite just isn't equal to the infinite. There are these syntheses of these polarities, but one polarity is a lot heavier than the other polarity, right? So that as it tries to relate to itself, is it spinning around? It can't keep that balance. Nice. Another image that you can put with this, insofar as you remember or are comfortable with Hegel's dialectic, which is just that one idea just kind of leads to the next one, and kind of leads to the next one, and leads to the next one, and you can talk about these things in an extremely abstract way, which is what Hegel's logic is all about. Well, Kierkegaard discusses sort of this personal dialectic, and it's all given by the structure of the self as he sees it. And despair is like when anything goes wrong, you're approaching the next step of the dialectic, something is sort of pushing back at you. Well, if you go too far one direction or you get stuck somewhere, then you're in despair. Like if things don't move smoothly, if you follow the dialectic all the way up, sort of ascend the levels of consciousness and get to 
become a knight of faith, I guess is his ultimate, then you've succeeded. And that's what everybody's goal is as individuals, if you even want to say that he's recommending this to everybody, which is unclear. Mm. I found it easier to get a grip on once I had sort of settled just with this idea that this is what the self is. It's this dynamic thing that's caught in this tension between polarities. When he talks about soul and body, I thought about, well, it's a perfect way to describe the insanity that is the mind-body problem, right? Like the basic problem for mind-body is I've got this thing that I call my, my mind that doesn't seem to exist in space, that doesn't seem to have limits, that doesn't seem to be physical. And then I've got this body, which is the complete opposite of that. It's completely physical. It exists in space and time. It has limits. I'm stuck in it. And if you just start thinking about the mind-body problem, you should start to get a little crazy, that's just philosophy 101. If that problem makes you crazy, then you're a good candidate to be interested in philosophy. And if you don't give a shit, then you're probably <laughs> not going to ever, ever care about anything philosophical. And you can almost think about that one standing for the infinite, the other standing for the finite, as you know, when you start saying, okay, well, somebody who doesn't realize that there's this crazy stuff going on in being a person is in that first stage of despair, they're in denial, right? They're just completely unaware that there is all this craziness. Now, he obviously wants to use God as the infinite term and something else as finitude, but he later on talks about there's mind-body, there's will, there's soul and world, there's consciousness, there's God. There's a lot of different ways to look at this, but the basic thing is that you're caught between these two things, one of which you're intimately familiar with, and one of which is almost like a mystery. It's so far on the other end. And that the fact that you're caught in between those two things, and the one at least is unattainable because of the other, should put you in a state of despair. I like that because it's a very secular way to read despair, which I think is helpful for a lot of people who probably would be just turned off by Kierkegaard as a result of the whole Christian aspect to it, right? I mean, clearly, thinkers like Heidegger and Sartre found a lot of value to Kierkegaard's sense of the self without having anything to do with the whole God aspect of it, right? Yeah, and when we yeah. do study Heidegger, you'll see the secular version of, or secular is kind of, Heidegger had his own religion. <laughs> sort of, right. Yeah. Here we could cash out that secular version in terms of the relationship to, let's say, finite and infinite, which Daniel was talking about, because the first stage, the despairing unconsciousness of having a self... I think means having a self in the fullest sense or having a eternal or infinite or let's say transcendent aspect to the self. I think that makes sense whether or not you think that ultimately Christianity will be the solution to despair. You could cash out this first form of despair that he talks about in terms of spirit or infinite or the, the possibility, something that makes freedom possible, let's say. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I kind of have to see this as secular is that... Um I think it's well established that I'm not a Christian. And so his solution ultimately isn't going to work for me. But I want, I like a lot of what he's saying. And obviously, I like Heidegger. And uh, Heidegger takes a lot of these things He out. sort of takes the first half and drops the second. And I think the first half has a lot of value to people who don't need the whole God aspect. I'm not opposed to using the word God or talking about God in this context. Right. As long as we're open about our definitions, which uh, Kierkegaard might have been less so. But on the other hand, that also begs the question, how serious was Kierkegaard being about any of this, right? I think a lot of his point was not to tell you how it is or how it should be, but to get you to get yourself to ask, where am I on this whole wavelength? Let's stop for a sponsor break. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the aesthetic launch your online shop stage to the ethical first real life store stage, all the way to the religious did we just hit a million order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling self-consciousness or offering ontological transcendence, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale systems. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify turns Don Juan browsers into Abrahamic buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what I love the best about Shopify is that, like PEL, it's not just a tool. It's a community of like-minded seekers who support each other and are supported by learning resources and fantastic help. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States. And Shopify is the global force behind Muck and Brass, Black and Bold, Whitespace, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash P-E-L, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash P-E-L now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash P-E-L. One thing we should keep in mind going through this, I know, uh, Daniel, you had recommended these lectures that people can uh, purchase that uh, I had already heard by uh, Robert Solomon. So he was one of uh, the guys that taught us at UTexas. With all these thinkers, he doesn't even really quote the text. He just gives the most sympathetic, the most useful to him interpretation of these guys that he can. And he analyzes this. uh, Yes, Kierkegaard is intensely devoted to his particular brand of Christianity, the Lutheranism of his time. But Solomon at least claims that you could take the personal approach and the invitation to take the leap of commitment really for any religion. And he talks, uh, Solomon talks a bit about Buddhists going through something that's very comparable to this. So I'm not sure how well that applies to this particular discussion. Like for me, the fact that it was ultimately going to end up with be you have to submit to God and realize that that's the key part of yourself that you have to acknowledge it really ruined quite a lot of it for me. <laughs> but I will try to uh, take that open-mindedness. I don't think you need to view the sickness unto death as this whole build-up to one punchline at the end saying, and if you don't give up everything to God, then all is lost. I mean, first of all, keep in mind the tone of the book was written by this pseudonym, Anticlimacus or Anticlimacus. With the idea that this was from a perspective that was so Christian that even Kierkegaard couldn't meet it. That's why he chose that name. So I think we should take what's being said here seriously, but I think there's a lot of value to be taken and that Kierkegaard isn't necessarily saying your only solution out of this is to just kind of put unalloyed faith in God and just constantly relate yourself to God and try and do this. I think the real point is kind of hidden in the middle, which is, look, a lot of people just live their lives without even going through this process. A lot of people are simply just far too satisfied thinking they're Christians thinking they have their act together and not coming to terms with the choices they have to make in life, right? One could completely look at this as just a critique of mass society, of kind of comfortable bourgeois mentality, of making oneself a number. What he's trying to say is, no, you need to relate yourself to these concepts, whether it be relating yourself to God or just kind of reflecting upon your own choices and how you're going to comport. And again, the self-relating to itself, how you're going to comport your interiority with your exteriority, right? So I think I once heard Solomon saying, look, to some degree, what Heidegger thinks you need to do is you need to just construct a project for yourself. 
Right. And that's a way that I think you can tie in a lot of what Kierkegaard has to say without having to get hung up on the God solution. You've got a limited amount of time. This is resolving your finitude and your infinitude. A lot of people just kind of float from blip to blip to blip without realizing their life is this one continuous process. And you need to come to grips with the choices you make in life in order to develop your own understanding of who you are. Yeah. And and there may be a way to as well to cash out the idea of submission to God, let's say, in the end in more secular terms, right? Because in the in the beginning, he talks about it as there being this power that has established a self-relation and resting transparently in that as a way of fully being oneself, we could say being authentic. So despite the particular Christian trappings of this, or even theological trappings, the extent to which it needs those is unclear to me. I mean, of course, Kierkegaard certainly thought that Christianity was the one religion that bridges the finite and the infinite, you know, via someone who's both God and man and so on. But again, I think we can get secular versions of these notions, including of the notion of, of a, the idea of submission to God or to some greater being, let's say. It's funny that how somewhat atypically I'm taking, I'm actually reading this like a work of metaphysics, you know, and I'm sort of like, oh, well. You have this relation that exists in this impossible place between the infinite and the finite, and there's no way to comprehend that reasonably. There's no way to understand how that's even possible except through God. And so that's what leads to... Sounds like the Heideggerian influence here. Right, and it's not just through God, it's through embracing the absurd, which is really what religious faith comes down to for him that it's this personal relationship where you really can't do analyses you can't do analyses of theological things and and a lot of again the stuff about christian intellectualism that he was objecting to like trying to make miracles sound plausible or trying to give sensible explanations for how jesus could be both a god and a man or how we could both be spirit and flesh like no these are just fundamental paradoxes that are supposed to kind of drive us to this kind of enlightenment Yeah, well, no, the reason I said that it's funny is because if Daniel wasn't on this podcast, I would probably be talking more like him, and Wes would be talking more like me. (laughs) But this is what I'm trying to say, Mark, is that take everything else out of the equation from a purely philosophical perspective, or at least from just interpreting this one particular text. It's fascinating that I now come to understand that Kierkegaard's notion of the self is that the self is itself one of the fundamental paradoxes that you just described, and that you have to understand yourself as only being possible as an absurdity or in the face of the absurd, just like spirit and flesh and and those sorts of things. And that's why you need God. But that in itself is a fascinating concept, that the self is maybe the paradox. And that's interesting and new and unusual. Mm -hmm. And to say that it's not a thing, not trying to get at You know, his solution, the other part of it is that it's not just that it's a paradox, it's that it's a dynamic paradox. And that's what brings in the Hegelian dialectic aspect, that to be yourself, you have to engage in dialogue, as it were, between all the different things that you're sort of stuck between, and between yourself and the fact that you are this type of thing, not just the sorts of things like society versus your individual will, possibility and necessity, but also the fact that you are this type of thing, you have to engage dialectically with that. And because it's dialectic and there's no finite static end that you're going to drive to like you would in a Hegelian model. That's right. And I think he says it's that it's so difficult that most people just don't bother. 
Well, yeah, first you have to realize it. You have to start. What is it? Acknowledging it is the first step. Kierkegaard's 12-step well, it's a three-step program, yeah, exactly. right? But, you know, which is, because, well, you know, I mean, is that the, ex- the way the existentialists get off drugs? Just three steps. Actually, maybe we can write a self-help book based on that. Well, this. I mean, I'd like to think that The Sickness Unto Death is intended, either ironically or sincerely, as a kind of self-help book, right? I mean, the whole introduction to the book is, look, hmm. this is a kind of sickness of the spirit. And I am going to be the doctor who attempts to cure you. And just as a doctor is only going to explain the sickness to you in lay terms, because the doctor understands that you're not going to get the whole science of physiology. So he's only going to explain it as much as you, the patient, need to understand it. Kierkegaard, or Anticlimachus, is is basically saying, look, I'm only going to try to explain this in terms that you can understand it, but I am doing this so that you can try to be cured of this. Because he never at one point says that despair is so invisible that it's not a problem. His point when he says people have despair and don't know it, it's not that they don't experience the symptoms of despair, which is this kind of very banal, this very kind of cliched sense that everyone I think has at one or more points in their lives of. All of this seems so utterly pointless and meaningless. And he's trying to get you to understand how it is it comes to pass that you feel this and that the only way you're going to break out of that sense of kind of hopelessness and futility at this crazy world in which we live is to go through this process. Now, ultimately, he's got a solution saying, ultimately, you kind of have to go with faith in God, right? And I think that's important. I mean, this is one of the key things that I think to get maybe swing it a little bit back toward his Christian message, which is that despair is a sin. It has these symptoms when you feel it, but ultimately, it's a sickness that you do to yourself by either not thinking about it, or once you think about it, you're not willing to come to terms with it, or once you do come to terms with it, you ultimately just reject it as all nonsense. But if you're willing to go through all of those stages, you'll ultimately break through. Now, any number of different people, Sartre's probably the obvious one, found ways to secularize that solution. Ultimately, Sartre kind of elevates freedom to this ultimate point, that the ability to choose above all else is something that you have to kind of commit to, and that will give your life meaning and kind of cure you of the despair of pointlessness. And to some degree, you guys touched on this on your Camus episode too, right? that ultimately the only way you can kind of break out of this uh, suicidal sense of meaninglessness is to just construct a meaning for yourself through choice. I think you said that despair is a sin. I think he actually says that despair is sin. Good point. And so this is a way you can kind of metaphorically, I guess, tie this into the concept of man being born into original sin. You know, you're born into this state of despair, whether you're aware of it or not, and then you have to spend kind of your whole life trying to claw back out of it, so to speak. But you brought up the concept of freedom, too. It's not just freedom, right? It's freedom from despair, which would theoretically be what? Oh, well, I didn't mean to say freedom from despair. Kierkegaard wouldn't say that freedom is the opposite of despair. He would say that despair is sin and that the opposite of sin is faith, right? Now, most people at the time, and probably today, would say that the opposite of sin is virtue. But he's saying, no, sin is not something you commit. You know, most people think of a sin as murder, theft. An act. Yeah, acts that one commits. Whereas he's saying, no, it's a state of existence, right? It's a kind of a mindset. It's a sort of defiance of a command of comportment that God puts upon you. I don't think he would say that freedom is a cure for despair. I would say that there are other thinkers since Kierkegaard who have tried to replace God, you know, replace faith in God with something else. And ultimately a commitment to, you know, using freedom as a commitment to your own ability to build yourself up and to make your own choices and to own your own life. It seemed to me at least the Sartre solution. Now, I don't know are we already breaking some of the ultimate axioms of the show here that we're not going to be name dropping or is it okay because you guys have you covered are. a lot of this already okay fine. <laughs> we should give some of the concrete examples a lot of the middle of this essay is taken up by this psychology really and it's kind of a phenomenological psychology it's like here's my 
the results of my introspection and my looking at other people. And here are problems that people can run into in this dialectical obstacle course of becoming what you truly are. So we talked about the finitude versus infinitude. And, you know, how could we be stretched between those? Well, he, he describes for each of these kind of things. And I, I wrote down like eight kinds of despair before I just stopped, <laughs> but there's more than that. Is that from your own personal experience? Mark? <laughs> <laughs> so if you, you know, focus on the infinite aspect of our nature and forget about the finite, then it's like you're living in a fantasy world. In fact, I don't think he would do just an analysis of the mind body problem, sort of considered an abstraction. What he considers the mind body problem. I'm sure this is what you meant, Seth, is, you know, the embodiment in the world of action, right? So this, the mind-body problem is very much tied to what you think versus what you do. And so if you're just hanging out and introspecting all the time and just think that the world of possibilities is for you, I see this is something I'm definitely guilty of, that, you know, you need to realize your embodiment as well and thereby transmit all this thought into action. The second example, being obsessed, being, ignoring the infinite aspect of ourselves is just being very narrow-minded. This is my job. This is what I do. This is my routine. These are my interests. I'm not interested in hearing anything about philosophy or other things. You know, that's the other side. The first version that I described, I think very well describes most philosophers and certainly Kierkegaard himself as too stretched up in their own thoughts. Really, in some ways, Kierkegaard is the chief antagonist to this partially examined life thing that I was one of the foundational ideas of having this podcast and my attitude toward philosophy that like, if you just do it all the time and let it consume you, that that's kind of unhealthy. You really should, as you were saying, some of these existentialists do say, take a project and throw yourself into that rather than just constantly introspecting. And, you know, if you're just sick in a secretions of your own thought, and that can get to the extent that you don't actually really accomplish very much at all. Probably we all know people like this or are people like this, if you're listening to this. <laughs> well, we'd mentioned this um, this idea of becoming something, an authentic, we've dropped the authentic. Obviously, if the self is, like you say, Mark, liable to all these different types of despair and the state of the self is despair, we said that Kierkegaard has a solution and suggests a solution for how to get out of despair or at least deal with it and reconcile yourself to it in some way. But that solution is, he mentions, becoming your true self. And whether that's a metaphysical state or a something that's more almost psychological, this idea that you might be something that you're not is part of what he plays on in that first third of the book. And I think what he means there is like, say, for example, you really, you don't feel like you're a real social person, or maybe you have a certain set of friends you want to spend time with and family and what have you. But you work at some kind of a firm that has lots of social functions that require you to show up and put on a brave face and smile and glad hand and all that sort of thing. And you do it, but you really don't feel like that's you. And you really don't feel like if you were dictating the course of your own life and all that, that you would spend your time doing that as opposed to whatever else you'd rather be doing. Like maybe you want to brew beer, but you're a marketing executive. And at least that's part of the sense that I got, that you're caught in this tension between something that you aspire to or something that you want to do and something that, say, societal pressures might be encouraging you to do. Just in the service of utterly agreeing with you on that, I wanted to use that as a section for one of my favorite quotes from the whole book, where he says here, Such things cause little stir in the world. For in the world itself is what one least asks after, and the thing it is most dangerous of all to show to signs of having. 
The biggest danger, that of losing oneself, can pass off in the world as quietly as if it were nothing. Every other loss, an arm, a leg, five dollars, a wife, etc., is bound to be noticed. I just thought it was a really kind of poetic way, which, by the way, kind of acts in stark contrast to some of the tedious writing in, in other sections of the book, really kind of encapsulates what you were saying there, that society really doesn't encourage you to think about what it is you want to do and, and how to direct your own life. Yeah, and we're not taught to either be aware of or value the self as much as we're taught to be aware of and value other things, which is it's just kind of like an upending of what he thinks the right focus should be. And that makes, I don't know, I, I agree with that point at least. I don't remember if the word authentic is actually in this text, but he does talk about a true self and a... Not in this translation. No? Authentic. Uh -huh. There's no word is not in there. Yeah. But you, one can see how, how that concept of authenticity derives from well, Kierkegaard's words, I would think. The reason I think it's interesting is that the self is this dynamic thing, and you come to realize that you're in despair. So you start to engage in a kind of dialectical self-examination. Only for Kierkegaard, it wouldn't be partial, Mark. It would have to be a wholly examined life. <laughs> yes, um, you have to never stop. Never stop. That you have to constantly renew... Ugh, how exhausting. I know. Think, about, 42, think about this. If there is a true you, or if you believe that there's a true you, and those are two different things, then it suggests that this dialectical process has a teleology, by which I mean it suggests that if you achieve your true self, you've reached some kind of an end. And that seems to me to be at odds with other parts of the book where he talks about this just sort of ongoing, recurring, constant struggle that you're going to be engaged in. So I wanted to ask you guys, is it really critical that we acknowledge and talk about this concept of a true self, becoming a true self, or is that just sort of a side note to the, the main part, which is this coming to reconcile yourself with the fact that you're this weird relation that's grounded by God? I feel like I want to rage a little at this point. Rage on. I feel like rage on. That this whole thing of you're in despair, you might not realize it, but you are in despair. And, that, you know, it's relying to some extent on if you look inside yourself, you will see that there is a gaping hole in your life. And if you follow the logic through, you'll see that ultimately the end point is your true self is, you know, maybe there's other things to your true self that you are an artist rather than a, uh, or a beer brewer rather than a, an accountant at heart. He doesn't seem to get that specific, but certainly he talks about ways in which you could embrace something that is not your true self, right? Which pretty much anytime you say anything really determinant about yourself, like this is what I am, I am this kind of artist, or I am this, then you're denying your own world of infinite possibilities and your own free will. In some ways, settling on anything is going to be intellectually dishonest in some way. But at the same time, it is teleological because he thinks you're supposed to end up submitting yourself to God. You sort of, you know, I recognize the things I can change and uh, the things I can't, <laughs> the wisdom to know the difference. It's like he's giving a very highfalutin version of that bit of folky wisdom. And so ultimately, you have to acknowledge your flaws and things. If you deny them, you're, the denial is, is a form of despair. But once you recognize them and can get a good, accurate view of the way you act and the way you think and the infinite possibilities that are tied to you, you have to then submit. You have to give this up in some way and say, it's really all in God's hands. God is the one that has driven me like this, has made me what I am, that gives me this freedom. And the thing that makes me want to rage here is that's supposed to then relieve the despair. He's playing upon his readers saying, you have this hole in your life. Here's the way to get out of that. But yet, if you actually get to that point, well, first he says, almost nobody gets to that point. And the whole book of fear and trembling is how crazy and inexplicable the true night of faith is and how you can barely even imagine what it is to to have reached this point of peace 
he promises you peace, but clearly from his own experience, he thinks, well, you could get to peace, but then, oh, you have to keep trying. You have to keep struggling to be at peace every second. You have to renew that commitment to God. There's never a, a state of Zen calm at the end of this. So I could then turn it around and say, hey, you bastard who's been saying I've been in despair this whole time. I would think you who's having to struggle, who thinks he's at the end of this point and at peace with God, but yet, you know, oh, no, I, I accidentally said a bad word. Oh, no, God's going to be mad at me for 20 years. You know, you're the, the neurotic one. Okay. <laughs> well, no doubt that Kierkegaard was neurotic. But, I mean, is Kierkegaard really saying this? Or is he just taking the most radical, most off-the-chart type of assertions in order to be able to get you to think about the issue for yourself and reach your own conclusion? You know, the way I tend to think of Kierkegaard here is a bit like Stephen Colbert. He plays this character on television who says things that are utterly ridiculous, and yet the people who watch his show and enjoy his show clearly get the joke. And to the extent that he's ever trying to make some sort of political commentary, you clearly get the commentary, even though the commentary is usually the exact opposite of what he's saying. And so I don't know if it's entirely fair to say that this is what Kierkegaard is saying you have to do. This is what this character he's created is saying you have to do. I think that's a fair point, Daniel, but let's think about this this way. Let's say his whole goal is to get us to question our assumptions about, you know, X, Y, and Z. So he's got Mark riled up, so he's succeeded in that. He's out of ignorance. Um, he's out of spiritlessness. He's definitely out of spiritlessness. <laughs> At least out of denial. Um, and it's just funny because, you know, I kind of like feel like, well, I have to have some point of view to be questioned, and I have to have some basis on which what he's saying is going to make me question things. So I'd still have to go through this exercise saying, here's what I think the book is saying. And then if we get to the point where we say, well, does that make a lot of sense? Or is he just being, you know, again, ironic, but I can't help this natural inclination to try to make sense of this in the most charitable way that I can. So I had the same reaction as Mark when I was reading that section. At the same time, I'm like trying to construct as if I was having a conversation with him. And he says, no, I really believe this. And I'd be like, really, you believe this? Okay, well, let me kind of piece it all together and then let me see where does it make me think and question my own assumptions and where do I think it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I do think that Kierkegaard influenced so many different people, but I've got to believe that there is a way to take the meat of what he's saying without accepting the punchline. Well, whether one accepts, let's say, the Christian trappings of it, you know, you could even object to the idea of this radical responsibility. You know, it begins to sound... Ayn Randy in a little bit, <laughs> but uh, which I really enjoyed the reading. But you could just to the objections that Seth and Mark made that resonate with me being an extremely lazy person. I tend to be more of a determinist. You know, I tend to buy into the more character-based thing, like the idea that if you want a conception of sin, it's going to be based in character, not in some idea that oh, you chose this. So a lot of it, I think, turns on how one feels about notions of free will and radical notions of responsibility. You know, Nietzsche, and since we've looked at some of uh, the genealogy of morals, there's a lot of kinship in a way in the literary and gadfly elements and stylistically and the existentialist lines. But Nietzsche is going to reject that idea, for instance, that there's this ultimate free will grounded in the soul and so on and so forth. Perhaps... Kierkegaard, if you were listening in on this conversation right now, would say, look, everyone on, on this call right now is already engaging with these issues in a way that he's suggesting you should. Because I think his biggest issue was ultimately don't let yourself be utterly defined by 
society and its in its conception of what you ought to do or what you ought to believe in. I mean, he narrowed in specifically in the second half of the book is don't buy into the smug, self-satisfied Christianity that everyone in Denmark seems to have opted into. Don't think of something as important as belief and defining yourself as just something that's handed to you. Even for you, Wes, to say that you're ultimately a determinist. Well, I'm not. I don't fall on either. I mean, I, I have sympathy. Sure. I mean, I was going to say, but you even if you saying. were, perhaps Kierkegaard would say that the very act of making these decisions and reflecting on these points is itself an act of self-determination. To make the kinds of changes, let's say, towards authenticity... I think it's a long and difficult process, which, of course, Kierkegaard acknowledges. I'm thinking in terms of along psychoanalytic lines now, right? Where you're fundamentally trying to change character. And that's not merely a matter of willpower, let's say. And I don't think I'm necessarily characterizing Kierkegaard legitimately there. I'm just saying that if... Oh, he says it is a matter of willpower. With yeah. Faith, with faith in particular. Like, if you, you know, oh, I wish I could have faith. I would love to be convinced that there's a God. He has no sympathy for that kind of... Yeah. If you look within yourself, you have enough evidence to pass, like, William James's will to believe test. In other words, there's nothing that tells you, obviously, that it's false. So that's enough for you to make the leap. People who are, have fortuitously have certain abilities or certain character traits might look at others and say, oh, it's a matter of willpower. It's sort of a rationalization after the fact. It feels like willpower afterwards when really... It's a function of character. It's a function of these deterministic... I think I get what you're saying, Wes. There is a part in there where he talks about willing to be somebody or willing that sounds a lot like Nietzsche. You know, if you will yourself to change from your current inauthentic state to what you truly aspire to or to reach this state of faith, it's just a question of will. There definitely seems to be that hard line that doesn't allow for what you're describing. I, I think if Kierkegaard was listening to this conversation, <laughs> I just, Daniel, when you said that, I was laughing because I thought, well, probably the first thing he'd say, okay, are any of you assholes like aliens? <laughs> but then the idea that we might not be his target audience because we're already engaging in some kind of activity, I think that's actually an interesting question because I, I really don't know. When we talked about Socrates in the very first episode and the examined life, we sort of agreed that we were probably doing a lot more than the average person and probably just about enough. We weren't... Over- Philosopher's complacency, we have. Yes. And the, <laughs> we're probably the fine. Other, Everybody else is sheep. We're, we're all right. On the other hand, I think there's a place for the notion of freedom within... I mean, I think I'm more of a compatibilist like Hume, you know, the way we discussed in our... Hume episode where you can sort of reconcile some notion of freedom and determinism. But one way to do it here is to say that you would have to describe that as a fortuitous function of character, like moments of freedom, let's say, grounded in circumstances. So if I'm developed enough, let's say, as a person, then my freedom is increased. I think this is described in the possibility versus necessity section, where he gives the example of possibility is like offering a child a treat. The child will say yes straight away to that. But then there's the question of whether or not the children's parents are going to consent or going to allow that. I mean, he always says that possibility, i.e. freedom, the freedom to make choices, of which he's written other books on, right? I mean, either or dealt with going from the aesthetic stage of life into the ethical, which was essentially his dealing with the fact that anxiety is a function of having to make these choices in life. But this seems to me that he does spend a section on this, specifically saying this is one of the tensions we have in life, is what we want to do versus what we're stuck with, given our place and time and space and whatnot. In other words, he's not pretending that all is freedom. He is saying that your possibility is opposed by necessity. 
Right, but the point is to yeah no but that's the, that's the, these okay. are these are two ways of being in despair. One is losing sight, and I was about to respond to you and, and say, oh yes, subjectively, he maybe he is a compatibilist if you got him to you know analyze it scientifically, but he so is not concerned with that that he just you know from a first person standpoint, I always have the opportunity to make a choice. I can always make the leap, but I accept the you know right here in this text, as Daniel just pointed out, that we've got form of pathology. Just as being a, a strict determinist and denying your own choices is a pathology, is a type of despair, going too far the other direction, and, uh, right. and just em- completely emphasizing your own freedom in the way that I think Sartre does, at least that's the way Solomon always taught him to me, which is the entire thing is just on, you are responsible, you are responsible, you made this choice, you put yourself in this current situation, you can interpret your environment any way you choose, like, Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I remember at that. Page sixty-eight um, of my Penguin Classics version. It's part one C capital A parentheses lowercase B beta. <laughs> <laughs> I like the opening paragraph here, and maybe this will help you find it. It says, "If one wants to compare running astray in possibility with a child's use of vowels, then lacking possibility is like being dumb. Dumb as in speechless. The necessary is is as though there were only consonants." But to utter them, there has to be possibility. If that is lacking, when a human existence is brought to the point where it lacks possibility, it is in despair, and is so every moment it lacks possibility. I don't know, I just thought that was kind of a fun turn of phrase. What he's saying is that, you know, he talks about the fatalists, right? And fatalists have no God but necessity, is the way he puts it. But to do so, then he loses God, and therefore himself. Now, it seems to me, just like an equation, you can drop God out of either side of the equal sign and still say the fatalist has nothing but necessity, and therefore he loses himself. What was that Richard Linklater movie uh, set in Austin that, that had a kind of a cameo appearance? Uh, all of them. <laughs> but it had, that, uh, it had that cameo appearance. Slacker. No, it wasn't Slacker. It had the cameo appearance by Solomon in it. Waking Life. Didn't that have a section? Yeah. It's a cartoon Solomon. It was a cartoon Solomon. Solomon. Yes. He gets really frustrated with the post-structuralists. Because they try to define self as completely determined, completely socially constructed. And Solomon at least felt that's really kind of a cop-out, that we really do have choices. While one can talk about one's limits, to, to focus only on the limits is essentially to pass off your only responsibility for the choices that you can make. Right. I get the sense that sort of collectively we've agreed we don't have much use for the second half of the book. Well, I'm sure we'll talk a little about yeah. sin, but episodes get lame when I, and it's usually me, insist on getting all the way through the text. Yes, we could go through all of the forms of sickness and talk about sin and blah, blah, blah. But I don't think that would be as fun as what we're already I don't, talking Yeah, about. I don't think so either. And, <laughs> and also, I felt, you know, when I was quoting off this thing about, you know, the part 1C, A, B, beta, I mean, isn't that a joke in itself? There's humor in that. Have you ever seen an outline that goes out to beta? <laughs> you know, even in the 19th century, that must have been a bit beyond the pale. It, it seemed to me that that itself was a kind of a, a comment on Hegelian philosophy. Or, it, it kind of appeals to my obsessional nature. But. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, insofar as he drops the act in the second half, or, he, you know, he doesn't go to that level in the second half if of the book. If only he had a graph that yeah. showed the, <laughs> a diagram. Yeah. Uh, visuals <laughs> would be great. Just, yeah. If only every philosopher I, did, right? I mean... <laughs> My big introduction to continental philosophy, I've said before, is uh, Frischhoff Bergman, who is a student of Walter Kaufman, who's like the main Nietzsche interpreter, did all the translations that are good. For this first class that I took with him, which was actually a, a way upper level course, I had no business being in there, but I took it as a sophomore. His visual that was supposed to be the whole representation of the great advance in epistemology 
among the continental philosophers, among Hegel and among Nietzsche and all these guys was something that looks kind of like a Pac-Man. <laughs> it was like just an open bracket, which is to say we no longer look at a representation, which is maybe something like the thing in itself is hiding behind it. No, we're just open to the world. And that was, it was at the same time, a very evocative image. It made me sort of feel like I understood, but <laughs> it's always as, as infuriatingly bad as <laughs> It's a visual aid. So I don't know if Kierkegaard would have been much more successful in uh <laughs> Well, I like the uh, gyroscope or whatever it would be. I think there's a huge dearth of visual representation in teaching philosophy. I think people could stand to I agree, yeah. do a lot better with pictures and graphs. But maybe that's just because I spent the last 10 years of my life creating PowerPoint presentations for executives which is very similar to creating crayon drawings for kindergartners. <laughs> Did you ever look at uh, Tuft? Do you know I'm talking about? The visual representation guy? I have. I was yeah, sent I to a seminar as part of my real world life, work world <laughs> existence. You know, you know, Mark? I haven't looked at the books, but we have them in our it's, house, yes. <laughs> yeah, so it's Edward Tuft, and he's into the graphical representation of information in very interesting and often beautiful ways. When I can, I don't have enough time to do it, but I like to make diagrams. I think it works with philosophy and with other subjects, and it's done so rarely, I guess, because it would seem simplistic. But I like the idea of, of representing some of the stuff visually. Those guys who do the um, people that do these little like philosopher in three minute things on YouTube, uh, little right. stick figure drawings and stuff like that. I think that's a really actually effective way of communicating. I wish there was more of it. I wish I had an illustrator at hand and I could uh, I could write librettos. Have, have you guys seen the Kierkegaard two thousand eight YouTube animation? There was a little meme out there, I guess around two thousand eight, of various philosophers running against one another. There's sort of, you know, Kant versus Hegel and uh, Kierkegaard versus Kant. Anyway, there's a market. So in any case, this would be like a pinball sort of being whacked back and forth by the various ways that you could screw up, the ways that you could be in despair to prod the narrow razor's edge path to get to the ultimate destination. Maybe we should talk about a few more of those. We hit the uh, finitude infinitude. We talked about necessity and possibility. Those are the two big ones. Well, then he introduces the giant distinction between despairs of weakness and despairs of defiance. Right. And he says some very sexist things at this point, like most women would, would have the despairs of weakness and most men would have the despairs of defiance. You know, women are used to submitting themselves completely to their man. You know, they're the, going to be the ones that aren't going to take control and develop their authentic self. But the men, they're going to want to develop, I know what myself is, this is myself, ha! Screw you, God, I got this under control. I don't have to submit myself to you. So he gives us some nice uh, caricatures. And then goes into the subdivisions again, a lot of which have to do with like how much do you accept the ideas of Christianity. Maybe you deny the whole thing because you think it's nonsense, or maybe you accept that there is a God, but you think this God must be totally cruel. Or you say, oh, my sin is so heavy, God could never forgive me. So even though that seems like you're being meek and humble and submitting yourself to God, it's really being sort of prideful and holding on to your sin. So those are kinds of the defiance. And then the weakness is in, you know, for instance, he talks about what we would talk about actual despair. Like, so your kid dies, say, and you're very upset about that. And you say, this has wrecked my life. I will never get over this loss. Well, that, like the loss of anything, even the loss of another person, he says, is tying yourself. It's again a form of denying your infinitude and your freedom because you're tying in yourself 
your values, the only thing that you thought was worth living for to this thing or this person you've lost. And no, no, you're more than that. You need to man up and uh, pull yourself out of your funk. So there are a few different kinds of the despair <laughs> that he talks about. To use a meme from current politics, <laughs> right? Yeah. That was uh, something that female Republican politicians were using to emasculate their, yes. their adversaries. Why haven't you manned up? <laughs> I'll use a meme from Zombieland. Nut up or shut up. <laughs> I think Kierkegaard is sometimes translated as saying that somewhere. <laughs> all right. So we were just saying that we're not going to talk about all the different forms of despair unless there are other particularly amusing ones that you think would be entertaining in themselves to go into the example a little bit. I mean, it does seem to take up a lot of text. He certainly is saying a lot, but I think he is trying to explain different ways in which people fall into despair because they want to become someone else or they want to stay who they are. To me, that's all we really need to say about it. Yeah. Because we've sort of given the big outline of this is what yourself is, this is what despair is, these are the ways that you can be in despair, and then this is... Plus, I don't think he means to say that there are six polarities and that's it, right? I mean, no, I think no, he's absolutely trying to give not. Yeah, absolutely so, not. right, so it's, it's therefore, like you said, perhaps it's not necessary to cover them all because he doesn't even mean for those to be an ex, you know, a comprehensive list. Well, the key, infinity and infinitude and possibility and necessity... And pretty much everything else is a variation thereof, or most everything else is a variation thereof. Well, and the third pole is unconsciousness of having a self and having an eternal self, or maybe this is the same way. Maybe this is just the finitude. In, well, in I think what he means by that is you're just defining yourself by your earthly aspects, right? You are how much money you make. Yes. You are what your profession in life is, without realizing that you are so much more than that. I think that's what he's trying to get at. Which is, that's the one, like, actual metaphysical assessment that I have an eternal soul. That's the only one that kind of crosses the line in terms of the explicit Christianity, whereas, you know, realizing your freedom and that you're, you know, there's always possibilities and that you can make choices and think and reinterpret the situations and all those good Sartrean existential things, we're on a little, you know, more common ground there. I do feel sort of compelled to say, you know, maybe without getting hung up on the God issue, we can just find a way determine whether or not there's any value in discussing that section by dropping God out of the equation. You know, I mean, I think it it probably is meaningful for people to understand that uh, they aren't what society defines them as being. So then after he's done talking about these forms of despair, he's sort of, in effect, given a complete structure of the dynamic self so that by the end of this, you kind of understand, oh, okay, that's the relation of the relation to its, all right, all right. Then he recasts this all in terms of sin, which... Kierkegaard is just one of those guys, and this is actually why I was driven to write that post from a Republican point of view or a libertarian point of view that was on the blog. I'm sure it'll be weeks ago by the time this gets up, was that Kierkegaard is a guy who bites the bullet on a lot of really objectionable (laughs) qualities that I find, at least in Christianity. I mean, you know, if you're kind of a reasonable reform Christian, you might just say, well, it doesn't matter so much if you've heard of Jesus or not. I mean, you know, little children born in India aren't all going to be damned to hell because they haven't heard of Jesus. I mean, really, be reasonable. It's just, it must be ethical action. No, for uh, Kierkegaard, it's all about your personal relationship with God and your acknowledging God and your quivering in the face of God. And that's... (laughs) That transcends the ethical, the whole ethical. Yes, there's something to that. But uh, if you're actually talking sort of virtue ethics, taking this back to Aristotle, yeah, you've got somebody that goes around murdering people is not going to be as good as somebody who is well behaved. But there's so much more room for improvement beyond that. Perhaps what he means is sins in the way that we traditionally conceive of them 
murder, theft, etc., are symptoms that derive from a more ultimate sin, which is not properly having faith. And so it's not so much that he's saying that despair is worse than the sins as we've traditionally conceived of them, but that all sins flow from this lack of faith. No, I, I think that's that. right. Okay. Some Christians will say, you know, if you don't believe in God, you can't truly be ethical or something like that. Kierkegaard is not going to say that exactly. I mean, what is it? What is it? No, he, he, he you're right. He, in fact, completely says that pagans were ethical. He's saying what makes Christians Christians is, is that they can transcend the ethical, right? Which he touches on a little bit here, but gets into in more vigor in fear and trembling. But it doesn't it seem like that unless you have, I mean, if you're saying that all sins flow from despair and despair is inevitable unless you have faith, that ultimately, you know, you're not going to be on secure foundation to remain ethical or just have the ultimately meaningful life unless you have God in there. I, I think that conflates being ethical with having a meaningful life. You don't need Christianity to act ethically. You need Christianity to transcend ethics. And there is a section in the book, in, in sort of in the first part of part two, where he talks about how children are first brought into this world by their parents to have one conception of how they're going to measure themselves. And then they grow up into adults and they exist in society and society gives them another way that they learn how to comport themselves, which presumably would be the ethical. But what happens when God is going to be the standard by which you're going to measure yourself? And that's a religious standard. It's not an ethical standard. It's interesting that, and this is definitely worth bringing up, even though this is not the focus of this particular work, that whereas we've sort of equated normativity with ethics, I mean, normativity is the prime concept of ethics. And so even our Nietzsche episode talked about him having an ethics, even though, you know, a lot of the focus on Nietzsche is what are normative commands? Where could they possibly come from? But ultimately, he does have some kind of virtue ethics, even though it's not maybe a universalizable and there's not a single moral ideal or, or whatever. You wouldn't even want to use the word moral. Kierkegaard makes this much more explicit. He would just consider Nietzsche like the pagans, somebody who just decides values on the basis of aesthetic concerns, what sort of seems the most beautiful, what seems the most interesting. But transcending that is a moral conception that seems straight out of Kant. Right, exactly. Which is to say that the moral is the universal, right? Kant thought that reason itself gives you morality in a very strict way. As soon as you sort of start thinking in general terms, you start thinking to act ethically is to act such that you are not the exception. You are not the leech that is... You know, everybody else has property and respects property rights, and you're the one that goes around and stealing things. Know that you have to act ethically is to be rational and act such that everybody could act this way. So that's the second level. But then beyond that, you get this personal, religious, inexpressible sort of commands for how you should deal with life. And this is ultimately what gives life meaning, you might say. Right. Kant is often criticized for just giving you negative, you know, don't act such that everybody couldn't act this way. Well, Way beyond that, the positive side of that, Kierkegaard is giving us an ideal to shoot for, and it's a very lofty ideal. I point this out because I think the connection, you've already brought up the our mind-body episode and things. One of the conflicts that we were having in, in that episode between people like Dan Dennett and somebody like Nagel is the emphasis between, it seems like a lot of what is in our mind is essentially public. Even though other people can't see your thoughts, the fact that you are thinking in English means you are taking part in a public activity. And this was something that even in our last episode, the Nelson Goodman, like, yeah, everything is in terms of conceptual schemes and the way we judge things. So even when we're judging abstract art or something, we're doing so in ways that other people could potentially replicate because they're using these common languages, these forms of symbolization. 
Whereas somebody like Nagel is trying to emphasize that there's this primary way that I am to myself that is not capturable in any third person description. That's really, there's no description at all. And as far as the Dennett article that we were reading, you know, in the same week was concerned, well, then there's nothing to say. You know, why even pay attention to that? That's not science. But Nagel's whole point is there is more to life than science. And Kierkegaard is all over that. Kierkegaard is like the patron saint of that point of view. And so I saw, so I have this book of the diary of Soren Kierkegaard, which is like a hundred page distillation of his journals were like, what, 15,000 pages? Yeah, they went 10, for volumes, 15, I think 17 volumes yes. or something. Yeah ridiculously. And and one of the things in there was there's a section on his kind of contempt for science. Like I know Solomon in his lectures say, oh, well, he actually doesn't have any problem with science. He's just very clear. That's not what he's doing. Well, in these particular quotes, I saw you think you're getting at all the important knowledge out there, but it always is going to fall short with what's most important, which is, I guess, your own life as you experience it. There's going to be something that's beyond that. And that's the thing that philosophy has to pay attention to. That makes philosophy one of the humanities and not one of the sciences. I completely agree. I'm looking here at chapter one of part two of the book where he's talking about the successive stages in the consciousness of the self under the aspect before God. He says here, the point is this, the progression in consciousness we have been concerned with up to now occurs within the category of the human self or of the self that has man as its standard of measurement. But this self takes on a new quality and specification in being the self that is directly before God. This self is no longer merely human self, but what, hoping not to be misinterpreted, I would call the theological self, the self directly before God. And what an infinite reality this self acquires by being conscious of being before God, by being a human self that has God as its standard. A herdsman who, if this is possible, is a self directly before cattle, is a very low self. Similarly, a master who is a self directly before slaves... Indeed, he really is not a self. See Hegel. For in both cases, there is no standard of measurement. And here's what I think is the money quote. The child, who up to then has had only its parent's standard, becomes a self through acquiring, as an adult, the state as its standard. But what an infinite accent is laid upon the self when it acquires God as its standard. And that's where it falls apart. I just want to bring this back to the point I made earlier. (laughs) that The entire point of what makes Hegel's view of the dynamic of self Something like actual what psychology believes now or certain parts of psychology is that other people's concrete treatment of you helps develop your sense of yourself, let's just say, your identity and developing a healthy identity and not thinking, oh, I'm so terrible or, you know, having an inflated ego or any of this is, is all good psychology. And gaining some sort of control. I mean, this is kind of like several thinkers we've talked about in this podcast where the idea is to don't let just other people label you. You want to gain the upper hand and start determining yourself. And that's really what this whole authenticity is about. But then to somehow extrapolate and say you can have God's reaction to you or it's again, the way you put it is your reaction to yourself as being before God. I really have a hard time with that. How do you measure yourself to that standard? Most of us are capable of meeting the standard set by society. We go to a job, we follow the rules, we don't shoot people. Most of us are active members of society. It's not a very hard standard to meet. But what he's saying is you can't really develop the next stage of the self, the theological self, unless you put yourself to a higher standard than that. It's not good enough to simply follow society's rules. I think we can agree that you can't really become a religious self unless you do that. Whether or not becoming a religious self is worth the time and effort, you don't want to just throw it away as all just being lies and nonsense is another question. But if you accept the terms of the debate, which is that there is a theological self to be had, that ultimately 
Kierkegaard is saying it's to be had by comparing yourself to God's standard, not the state's standard, not society's standard. And what, what does that mean that exactly? Well, essentially, you have to live your life. Again, if you, if you think of the self as a relation to oneself, you have to, instead of doing what you want to do, instead of doing what society wants to do, you have to comport your life in a way that you think God would want you to. You have to imagine God is staring at you every second. That's right. Judging you. Exactly. And just think how horrific that would be. I mean, this is what Fear and Trembling, this is where the title of that essay comes from. You should be in Fear and Trembling Really at all times, because you have this, this, and this is another thing that he bites the bullet on that, well, why does God care about what I think right now? Why does, if I have a, an evil thought about my neighbor, why does God give a crap about that? Doesn't have God have bigger things to worry about? That's the kind of, you know, stand up comedian American take on that. Kierkegaard would give a full throated, yes, he cares about that more than anything because of course he's infinite. He can care about <laughs> the most minute details of any of us. <laughs> He is saying that that's a paradox. He's not saying that's easy or even necessarily doable, but he is saying that that's the paradox of religion. And Kierkegaard was nothing if not obsessed with paradoxes. I don't think he's trying to lay this out as something that you just do. You have to give up any sense of reason. I mean, what you just gave, Mark, was a very rational and reasonable account. And Kierkegaard's whole point is that Christianity is the complete opposite of reason and rationality. Right. Also, are we worried about those particular sins when we imagine ourselves before the standard of God, or are we worried about the more general despair definitions of sin? The sin of despairing over one's sin, the sin of despairing over the forgiveness of sins. Those generalities you could see as being, let's say, transcendentally derived, to go back to Kant, and you, you could almost abstract from the cultural. He wants to get away from cultural trappings, and so... It seems to me it's not enough to say there's a commandment here as part of the tradition, or I'm, I'm not sure. No, I think you. I think you're on something, my own Wes. He would say the following commandments is not enough. That that is well, not just that it's not enough. I don't know how one gets to specific what's sinful and what's not without an appeal to societal mores and all that stuff. This is just through Solomon here that he really is very radical in terms of not caring about religious dogma. That what's important is your personal relationship with God, these particular things that you might believe. And this includes ethical thing. I mean, I feel like he thinks you can get ethics more or less straight out of Kantian considerations. That's absolutely right. Right. I just wanted to get back to the idea of thinking of standing before God and sin that way. I don't know that we're thinking about those particular ethical transgressions. Maybe I'm wrong about this. I'm just... But I think this idea of measuring oneself by God's standard means specifically those larger sins of despairing over one's sin and so on and so forth. I think it's all about yeah, attitudes. Right. There you which go. What you're saying, those are attitudes, but also just especially like, am I keeping a positive attitude and trusting God? And again, that's the big example in Fear and Trembling that he gives this example of Abraham being commanded to kill his son. And it's not just that you know, Abraham was willing to kill his son, that that's why Abraham's so great. It's the fact that like, if you actually put yourself in that situation, like what you would have to do to your mind to make yourself do this, like you might have to say, oh, you know, as you're walking to the mountain, I'm just, I give up on my son. You'd have to kind of like cut yourself off from your love for your son to let yourself do this at all. But no, that's not what Abraham does. He's just like, oh, everything's going to work out okay. Or, you know, when God jumps in and says, ah, just kidding, Abraham, you don't really have to kill your son. A normal person would be really screwed up by that <laughs> would be like, oh, I had already prepared myself for this and now I'll never be able to look at my son again because I was prepared to do this horrible thing to him. And that, But no, Abraham is just, oh, that's great. I trusted you. I'm glad it worked out. And I'm not a schizophrenic. <laughs>
And that's what's hard and baffling and accepting the absurd and uh, having faith. There's a fine line between the absurd and psychosis, right? <laughs> In the sense of uh, God giving you commandments to um, do things. and You know, how do you know it's not <laughs> bad that your faith has something stupid? I mean, I guess we need to know what is the question we're posing here of Kierkegaard? Wes, is your concern that Kierkegaard is saying you need to act as though you were before God at all times? But what does that mean? How would that manifest itself? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I was just making a small point about that the standing before God thing is more about a state, or Mark mentioned an attitude, but a state of being than about worrying about whether God sees you doing something unethical. I don't think it's the latter. But I think it is a good question. What does it mean concretely to say, I have, I have accomplished faith. What is it in the end? What is one believing in the end? That, that it's not all pointless, that it's not all meaningless, that it doesn't all just end in nothingness yeah, and oblivion. That's, that's a good way to summarize it, yeah. That's part of Kierkegaard's frustrating nature, right? Is that he's just there to ask questions. He's not there to give answers. I think the exercise we're going through right now is exactly the point to which Kierkegaard wanted to lead us and then disappear into the woods. And now we find ourselves 10 miles in without a compass and we're trying to figure out what to do. See, I don't... The Sickness Unto Death, there's a follow-up work to this that's supposed to be the positive Christian edification part. And I, I didn't read that, but I looked at some other works like that. And Fear and Trembling in some ways serves the same purpose. Like, he has very definite positive ideas of what you're supposed to do, putting that in the broadest possible sense. In other words, what the correct religious attitude is, even though it's incomprehensible and it's not a matter of just following rules or... It's a much more complicated process. Well, sometimes it makes it sound complicated, sometimes it makes it sound easy. Just man up and have faith. <laughs> but you would agree that at the same time that Kierkegaard wouldn't say, just do as I do. And he wouldn't even say, do as I say. To him, that would be committing the very same sin of, of letting your actions and your thoughts being guided by society or being guided by the outside. Again, I think this is more about a state of being or a state of mind than particular virtues. It's not virtue that he's concerned That's with. That's right. It's faith itself. And I think hope captures a lot of that, too. The idea that you're not going to give up hope, let's say, despite one's worldly circumstances. Somehow, faith itself is enough, I guess. That's the sort of... I think it's that faith by itself. Cliche, not only is I mean, it enough, for, it's, 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 yeah. all you, it's all you can get. You know, how many of us have felt frustrations with how we want to be and how we reflect upon our own actions as having been or the way we treat others? It doesn't have to be something as about, you know, whether or not you followed the rules of the state. But I mean, don't all of us kind of set an ideal for ourselves as to you know, how we want to act with others, how witty we want to be in social company, how nice we want to be to our coworkers or our, our family members? And don't we, as often as not, fail to meet that standard? And whether or not we fail to meet that standard depends upon some degree where we set the bar. It seems to me you could be a person of quite a poor character and still live up to, by being faithful, to simply be redeemed in that Well, sense. you do have to believe in by, forgiveness. By having that one quality. Right. I mean, he does say you have to believe in yeah. forgiveness, and you have to accept the fact that if you fail, that's okay. But at the same time, I don't think he would say, therefore, you don't have to worry about it, because no matter what you do... I don't think this is kind of like our modern-day conception of the faith versus works kind of thing. You can transcend the ethical, well, I, I but I think it's, it is. It's Lutheran. I mean, he's a strong Lutheran. It comes out of that tradition of rejecting works in Catholicism. For Kierkegaard, you can transcend the ethical, but that doesn't mean that you leave it behind. Right. It's still there. You just had this idea that the religious was somehow a higher... It's a higher plane of existence, right? It's a way of being that's different, that you can progress to. Let's put it this way. There's a line of progression, and the ethical is one of the stages on the way to the religious. But that doesn't mean that you pass through the ethical and leave it behind, and that the religious is something else. What that it would entail would mean solely being reliant on religious sentiment or faith to try to derive normative action. 
you still can rely on all the other things that you typically rely on to get your ethical guidelines. It's just faith because it's, again, tied back into this concept of self-realization in a way that goes beyond what moral or ethical action is about. Wes, I don't think it's like the modern-day Baptist kind of thing where you can be a douchebag until the end of your life and then repent and just having faith is enough. What I'm trying to suggest is that that's sort of the unfortunate practical upshot of that faiths and works. Mm, Okay. Again, the corresponding problem is that how do you know you're having faith in the right thing? You don't. I'm not saying this is unproblematic. In fact, this is kind of, <laughs> This is... What if we tried to translate in this into something secular? I mean, could we... What would that mean exactly? Because what we have here is the idea of what? Forgiveness of sins through Christ as being the central way to move beyond despair? Well, it's not so much through Christ as it's just forgiveness of sins, that God will forgive you. I'm recasting in positive terms. Ah, right. One of the things he says, the continuation of sin, is the rejecting of Christ's teachings, let's say. But yeah, I, I'm wondering, if could we recast this in secular terms? And so- not this not part. Not this part, that's a good way to put it, Mark. I, mean, I do feel as though there's been a whole line of existentialist thought. I mean, Kierkegaard isn't called the father of existentialism for nothing. Clearly, there have been existentialist thinkers that have found much in Kierkegaard's works generally, in this book in particular, upon which to build their own systems of thought. I have to agree with Mark on this one. I don't think I'm not that- so sure, but I couldn't I couldn't offer a positive argument for some secular version of this. The idea in the beginning of obedience before resting transparently in the power that established the self relation as being important to the self relation, that seems to me to be the more abstract philosophical statement of what we're getting at the end, which is possibly so you're saying like Nietzsche, Nietzsche's version of that. I mean, Nietzsche has this very complex where, he, you know, you embrace your own freedom, but you also recognize that you're not free. <laughs> and he talks about it in, like you said, stylistically similar way to Kierkegaard, even though I think it's more of similar influences and in contemporaneous uh, historical existence than Nietzsche being influenced by Kierkegaard here. So, it's, yeah, I mean, I guess if you... Nietzsche, you could read as giving a secular version of this, and that's what existentialists did. Unlike Sartre's view of, you know, we have absolute freedom, if you're some kind of animal that has a certain greatness uh, teleology built into it, that if you can embrace that and make that yours, then you're doing something that is intellectually honest and gives you an authentic and enjoyable way of living. I like that. Give us your skepticism, Seth. Take the example of Abraham and this idea of the suspension of the ethical. It's committing murder. So it's pretty clear that from an ethical perspective, the action is wrong. And not only that, you know, he has to overcome sense of familial ties and so on and so forth. But he's in a unique position, which is he's given this command directly by God and he chooses to heed that command and override the ethical considerations. This is the suspension of the ethical in favor of the religious. My problem with this is, by the way, this is not my idea, this is something that's pretty standard in Jewish thought, is that nobody talks to God anymore. The generations... They're mental institutions. No, they don't. They don't. <laughs> the Jewish conception is that the generations of Abraham, and there's a point in time where God is a much more personal God, and there are people that get to talk to him, so to speak, but time has changed. and, and We call them prophets, right? Prophets, yeah. Or Abraham, and you have 
people wrestling with angels and, and you sure. know, those sorts of, those generations right. are past and God doesn't work that way anymore. So where I have a problem is trying to understand how, if you don't have a direct line of communication with God, if you don't have that direct kind of personal relationship in the old school way, how you're ever in a position to act on faith and suspend the ethical. And this is the real problem just for me. This conception that people have a personal relationship to God and that God tells them what to do or that you can get what to do somehow above and beyond ethical dictates doesn't make any sense to me. It only makes sense in a context where there is a personal God like this that's giving directions and speaking directly to people. It seemed to me that with fear and trembling, he's not so much telling you that this is what you need to do or that you need to have a personal relationship with God. What he's trying to do is to point out a contradiction in Hegel's sense of God being derived through reason and through historical process guided by reason. If you are going to accept this notion of approaching God through rational action, what Kierkegaard is going to say is, look, if you're going to follow that notion, if you're going to follow the life of the ethical, then there's really no way to make sense of Abraham other than as a murderer. And insofar as he is the father of faith, then what does that say about Christian belief and Christian faith if its founding proponent is a murderer? That's what I think Kierkegaard was trying to do. Again, he's not trying to posit something. He's trying to point out a contradiction. Christianity can never be reasonable. It can never be rational. It can never be derived through rational principles. Because there's too much in Christianity that requires that you believe in stuff that's just impossible and to be willing to do so. You have to really accept and struggle with the paradoxes inherent in Christianity if you're going to accept the notion of the ethical as being the highest form of action. What you just pointed out, Seth, was described to me in intro religion class in college, and I hadn't thought of it in exactly this way before, but as the defining characteristic of Christianity, that it's not about the rules, it's all about your personal relationship to the deity, and even though there's not necessarily voices in your head, you know, we have a conscience. If you introspect, you will see him there. You can find him if you look. All you need to do is reach out and there he is. And it's a point of view that only makes sense once you've kind of bought into the basis of it, which uh, his audience here is Christians who want to be more reflective Christians. So I would highly recommend Kierkegaard's work for people in that situation. For me, to give sort of my closing, you know, the only thing I'd read of him before was a highly abridged version, probably just the beginning of Fear and Trembling, which all I came away with that was with the disgust for biblical religion. Like, really? It's like, you know, hearing the Job story, because he, he really tells it in a very unflattering way that it did not make me want to admire Abraham. It, I got his point that like, no, he actually shouldn't be admirable and God shouldn't be admirable either. And this is all a bunch of crap. Anyway, I appreciated it much more this time. And I really was coming toward these texts and really Kierkegaard's body work, because here's a whole philosopher. He's like one of the major philosophers that I just only read a little bit of that I'd really not heard much of. I was taking this as a gift from history. Whereas some of these guys, I feel like the philosophical history and things that I was sort of forced by my professors to slog through, and I kind of resented that, you know, why is this guy so great? Uh, he shouldn't be in the canon, whatever. The canon shouldn't exist. Here, I came to it feeling very grateful that history has preserved all these texts and put most of them free online for my perusal. <laughs> so that's wonderful. And so I appreciated his style and the playfulness of some of his, at the same time, as I got further into it, I don't think I'm going to be reading more of this in the immediate future. I could see doing another episode on some particular topic he covers in the future, but I didn't come away from this ultimately as like a, yeah, I appreciate him more, but it doesn't make me actually want to read more <laughs> of him myself.
I want to read him to say that I have read him. I, I'm, I'm, I find it really fascinating that he wrote concluding unscientific postscript as his major work has that goofy ass name that was in fact a postscript to a much shorter and less significant work. So that all fascinates me. And, but it's really hard to get to the end of any of these essays. They're so freaking just long and going on and on about the same stuff. And it's all, if you take the Christianity out of it, I'm not sure what is really valuable that's left. I enjoyed it as well. And I, if I prepared more, I might've been able to think of, um, the thing that's valuable that's left after the Christianity that's been taken out of it. But I do like the idea of the importance of the self-relation and the idea that there's the infinite and finite parts and the balance between them. And that ultimately what's important to the balance is this power that establishes the relation. Whether or not you want to call that power God or the God of the Christians or even God at all. Maybe there's some room for describing that power more abstractly. And then there is almost a Spinozan way, because for Spinoza, there's one substance underneath mind and body, you know, uh-huh. provi- and that's God providing that relation. I enjoyed the style as well. Like you, Mark, I, don't, I won't be reading anymore. <laughs> uh, in the immediate future, one day, <laughs> when I'm Let's retired. say if we're still doing this podcast two years from now, we'll do another Kierkegaard episode, and we'll read one of his earlier works or something. Yeah. And if we don't hate you by then, Daniel, I'd love to have you back. <laughs> I appreciate it. There's lots of things that can happen. You could sleep with my wife and anything that could happen. Well, I do. Leave a bad comment on the blog. Well, I do, I do want to say I want to thank you guys for this opportunity. It's hard when you're trying to make sense of philosophy and a lot of these very difficult, abstruse concepts to do it on your own. And I think the podcast generally helps me get through some really difficult but rewarding frames of mind. And I think you guys really provide a, a great value to folks, particularly given that it's free. And I hope that the circle of people who are benefiting from this will only grow into the future. So uh, thanks for doing the podcast generally. And, and thanks for having me on with this. I think it was a really great exercise for me to try to make sense of this, of this stuff. Thanks for being on. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. Seth, did you have any, anything less grumpy to close with? <laughs> less grumpy. Um, <laughs> well, it, you know, it's funny. We had a professor at UT named Lewis Mackey who was kind of a preeminent Kierkegaard scholar, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. Also in the movie Waking Life by Richard Linklater, as well as Slacker. As well as Slacker, yes. Now that I look back on it, I see that you know he lived a life that made sense, that Kierkegaard was a big interest of his. And, and I just never engaged with Kierkegaard at any point in time, in undergrad or graduate work. And you know, given my particular interests, I had this like, sense of responsibility and obligation but also, if I can use one of his phrases, anxious dread at <laughs> reading Kierkegaard. And yet I feel obligated to because he's, quote unquote, the father of existentialism. And everybody keeps telling me how much Heidegger owes to him. So I feel like I'm going to have to. And we're building up to the point where if I don't come across really strong in the Heidegger episode, it's going to be a huge letdown for the thousand or so subscribers that we have. <laughs> but, um, so, you know, I feel like I was reading him through a lens of who he influenced Part of it is because I never studied him on his own merit. He's always referred to as an influencer of all these other people. And then, you know, the other part of it is there's just a level at which it's very difficult for me to engage with his work because I don't experience the personal religious dilemmas that seem to be such a huge focus for him. And I never found his style as engaging, and I didn't in this particular work either, you know, as some other philosophers with whom I was you less... You find him less engaging than Heidegger? 
<laughs> Heidegger is hard. Ah. <laughs> it's a different sort of thing. Okay, so let's let me give you a different example that might be more appropriate. Like if we ever do an Augustine or an Anselm or an Aquinas episode, none of us really, really, really wants to read a medieval <laughs> church father. And it's going to be really hard for us to, like, engage with them. And stylistically... guests are for. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But stylistically... I was so into those guys in college, actually. But go ahead. Were you? Okay. Yeah. I'm just saying... The guest. Stylistically, some of their works and some of them are going to be more engaging than, than others. I really like the idea of the dynamic relational self. You're going to see these themes, not necessarily of despair, but he also apparently wrote a treatise on boredom. Or had planned to write one on boredom as well as irony. And when you get into looking at being in time anyway from Heidegger, you'll see there will be a lot of familiarities with what we talked about tonight. Whether or not it's the exact same thing and Heidegger is just substituting being for God, eh, that remains to be seen. But I'm probably with you. I won't be picking up any Kierkegaard in the near future for light weekend reading. I should say, just since I brought it up before, that Fritjof Bergman, again, my continental forefather, big influence here, was uh, very anti-Heidegger, and it might just be because of the Nazi thing, and his parents were in Germany and stuff at the time, but also just from this uh, idea of the concealment of the subjective, that, again, we were talking about those two trends in philosophy, the language and conceptual schemes and all this stuff being public versus the private, and both of these are kind of in, in Descartes. Just again and again, it seemed like there were things in Heidegger that this is the hidden, the, the disclosed, right? Am I making stuff up here <laughs> about Heidegger? No. Yes. And this was all in latter chapter of Fear and Trembling, where it was all about exactly the same thing, which we've kind of touched on this, that there's something essentially private and incommunicable about what is ultimately valuable and what philosophy is ultimately supposed to be getting at, which is entirely incompatible with the open Pac-Man <laughs> bracket. <laughs> now, you know, we are exposed to the world view, which, you know, Bergman attributed to Hegel and Nietzsche and them. So it's interesting that these are two distinct trends, very strong within continental philosophy. This is not continental versus analytic. And I really haven't even heard a breakdown of these folks this way, but there we are. I'm sure this is a theme we'll pick up again. Mm-hmm. And how many world-famous philosophers are there out of Denmark? <laughs> I'm just saying. Living close to the Arctic Circle and not getting enough sunlight as a yeah. way of influencing your thought. <laughs> philosophy done in Northern Europe and philosophy done around the equator are very different. You know, I think that's a really interesting point that would be worth touching upon in, in future episodes. Nietzsche talked he did. about that. Yeah. How that... People in the north, they have to keep moving and walk around and they think. And now those people in the south, they just lie around. It's so hot. There's this languor about their minds. I think that really explains the American political uh, scene. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm just kidding. Well, I do think that, I mean, to try to tie it back to Nietzsche, I mean, Nietzsche did have a famous quote that I can't quite remember about how most of philosophy is really a comment on the philosopher than it is about any objective state of affairs. It may be that, for better or for worse, much of what Kierkegaard wrote has more to say about him than it does about any of us. Because he's a freak. Well, he was a bit of a freak, and he was a, a sensitive soul brought up into a kind of a very domineering patriarchal relationship. And I think you see a lot of those concepts of stern patriarchy radiating out from all of his works. I want to throw in one bit of gossip before. So even though he had 10, 15,000 pages of journal, 
apparently, you know, it's kind of private, but he really thought it would be published and like this would be his big thing that it would really be, you get to see the behind the scenes of how I work, man. This is going to be the thing. And so he would scribble stuff out and, and he would refer to, oh, I touched on the secret. I can't expose the secret to the world. And so, so this just raises like, what is this thing that if he had just not scribbled out these several passages, you would really understand where Kierkegaard is coming from. And I'm sure it has to do with, you know, masturbation or he's secretly gay or something like that. So I just want to throw out that bit of completely unsubstantiated rumor mumbling. Uh, what about the girl? We didn't talk about the girl. Regine Olson. Well, okay. So maybe, yeah, tying it into the idea of work as biography and, and fear and trembling in many ways could be read simply as one long apology to the woman whose engagement he canceled as a younger man. So when Kierkegaard was in his early 20s, he was first introduced to a young woman from the bourgeoisie named Regine Olson. He fell immediately in love with her. And I think part of the reason he fell in love with her is that she was a very bright and optimistic and bubbly personality to someone who really suffered with severe melancholy and, and perhaps what we might refer to as a kind of a bipolar disorder through most of his life. He became engaged to her some years later, became good friends with her family, and uh, everything was going about as well as it could be. But Kierkegaard seemed to soon reach a point after the engagement that he realized that he was going to have to commit his life to her entirely and as a result, at some point, broke it off with her, but did so in such a way that he was trying to essentially just do the, I think, kind of a bizarre behavior of just completely acting like a complete villain toward her for a while, trying to get her to hate him. And ultimately, it worked, despite repeated protests, said no. And he himself got wrecked over it. And to some degree, the themes in The Fear and Troubling are how one can try to explain one's religiously motivated behavior when it would appear to all outside observers as being completely unethical. Yeah, well, he brings up several literary examples that are kind of like the Abraham thing and essentially his own example, even though he doesn't call it that. Right. Yeah, somebody who thinks his marriage is cursed. Although, let me just leave it one last thing since you brought it up now, that maybe the secret is that really she dumped him. (laughs) (laughs) So he's just... You know, how, how the fuck do we know? Oh. This is what he wrote. Well, Regine Olson's diaries, uh, you know, her journals are also not part of the historical record, ah. and, and they largely corroborate what took place. But it just goes a long way towards saying that he was just really one messed up character. And does, does she <laughs> mention that he, like, gets it on with farm animals, and this is what he was deleting from his <laughs> I don't diary? Think, I think at that point in society, you know, when you were engaged to someone, you really didn't necessarily have a whole lot of intimate contact with with one other personally. I don't know that they ever really had any physical liaisons with one another. That's why he dumped her, because she wouldn't, you know, <laughs> but... uh, He dumped her because she wanted to. Yeah, that would be more likely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, All right. Say, yeah. Please look at partiallyexaminedlife.com. Follow us on Twitter. Join our Facebook group. Go on iTunes and give us a nice rating. So thank you, and thank you again, Daniel, and to uh, Seth and Wes. Thanks to you guys. Thank you, Daniel. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thanks, Daniel.